Welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Today on Relay Chain, we have Derek Yu from Moonbeam. Welcome to the show. Can you do a quick introduction of yourself? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Joe. Um, yeah, happy to do a quick intro. So, yeah, my background really is um, I've just been building software as a service, kind of uh, cloud technology companies my whole career. Um, so, you know, started like uh, you know, back in even the first um, internet wave back in the you know, late '90s, and um, you know, notably uh, back in uh, 2006, um, you know, started a company called Fuse, and I worked there for a good, uh, good long time. So, I was there for about you know, 12, 13 years. Um, building up that company before starting pure stick last year and um yeah that grew to be a pretty sizable company so um you know at the time i left that was a you know 700 person company 150 million dollar run rate uh, enterprise focused cloud business so you know kind of have this you know i guess expect most of my career kind of in the web 2 just kind of traditional cloud space and um it's been interesting kind of coming into the web 3 space because there are you know definitely uh, you know some substantive uh some substantive differences um, but, uh, yeah, I think the, you know, the story is my, my co-founder at that company, uh, a guy named Steve Kokinos. Uh, so it was he and I that started the co- that company back in 2006. You know, he had left to start another company in the crypto space. And it's really, in, uh, you know, through conversations with him that I, you know, kind of got into crypto and, and, um, you know, really started, you know, going down the rabbit hole. So, um, you know, he's now the, the CEO of, um, a project called Algorand. Uh, which is also based in Boston, you know, kind of where we are. So um, that's that's kind of how I, you know, initially kind of got interested. So uh, you know, pretty recently, I guess, but um, uh, you know, kind of knew I had to do something in the space, and kind of that's what led to starting uh, Pure Stake. Yeah, that's interesting because like we see so many people that kind of like, especially in like a, a young industry that's like a startup, very startup focused. A lot of people kind of jump like one year here, one year there, and I know like. I mean, I think you said like 16 or 17 years at that company. Um, 13 years. 13, 13 sorry. Years. Like I spent six years at a previous job and sometimes I feel like that's that was a super long time. Um, I guess like my first question is like, so Moonbeam fills a need for a lot of user groups. And I guess how did that experience like help you see the bigger picture and recognize this opportunity? Because I know like that, that kind of experience can really inform um, seeing the bigger picture. Yeah, I mean, uh, so... I mean, many thoughts here, but, but, you know, I think this, this experience of kind of growing a company from, you know, kind of two of us to what became kind of a 700 person company, it, it's like many companies along the way. I mean, I, sometimes I call it kind of like a, a book of many chapters, right? So like when you're kind of just starting out, you know, there's kind of one set of challenges you have and one, you know, one set of things I think that are the main things that are important to focus on. And then, you know, as your the company grows, those things change and even, you know, even some of the, the skills need to change, right? As you get bigger, right? It's more about, uh, kind of managing people, managing teams, and how do you, you know, kind of how do you understand kind of what's happening like at this larger scale? But I mean, for me, it's kind of in this early stage. You know, the most critical thing is just to really focus on who's going to use your product and kind of what features that product you know should have, and just make sure that you know you you kind of are building something that that people want, right? And I think this this kind of interaction with like actual users is you know, extremely critical, right? So that's. Definitely one lesson I've seen is that if you 
develop too much without kind of interacting with who's actually going to be your, you know, your customer or your user, uh, that can definitely be problematic because you know you make there's all sorts of assumptions you make. I mean, in the business we started, you know, this was in the kind of cloud communication space. We, you know, you you always have some model in mind or some idea, and then you know it. You know, we made a bunch of assumptions. Uh, several of those just turned out to be wrong, right? I mean, it wasn't obvious until we kind of, you know, we're a little bit down the line uh, to say, oh, like, you know, we thought that you know, internet bandwidth was going to be at this level of quality and like uh, it wasn't, right? And then we had to kind of change a whole bunch about, you know, our model and you know, changed, you know, the business substantially. So I think that those learnings you can't really get to until you're ac actually engaging with people and trying, you know, trying these things out. So that's, you know, that's definitely one, uh, one lesson. Um, you know, the, the other lesson I would say that, is something much subtler that, you know, is extremely important to me now, but you know, it was definitely learning is this whole thing of just about having the right culture and having the right, you know, just establishing the right culture and kind of this, how people interact and the kind of people that you hire. And, and it's kind of obvious, like in the one hand, like, yeah, you want to, you know, hire great people and, you know, skilled people and people that you like to be around. But this cultural thing, I mean, I think that's where if you had asked me back then, I'd say, well, you know, company culture and values. And it seems kind of like, big company-ish, right? It's like a, like a poster on like a cubicle wall or something and like, ah, we don't need that. And, but you realize it, it actually is pretty important. And if you don't kind of talk about that and kind of, you know, really emphasize that in your, in your hiring practices and make sure everyone's on the same page, it ends up kind of drifting over time. And it, it leads to like problems. It leads to like big problems as you get bigger. So uh, that's something I'm pretty, you know, pretty tuned into and conscious of, you know, based on that, that experience that I had before. Yeah, I've heard of some like bigger Silicon Valley companies where the CEOs have said that they interviewed like personally their first like 400 employees um, before they yeah. pass that off to like um, other departments or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think my, you know, the, this, uh, my co-founder Steve did, did that, but you know, at some point it was like six interviews in an hour. It's like, you know, seven minutes each. It's like, well, I'm not sure you're actually getting to know these people, but, uh, but uh, yeah, I think it's a, you know, I think that's, you know, that is definitely part of that same spirit, right. Of just wanting to be connected and kind of knowing that people are on the same page and you're, you know, creating the right culture. Yeah. So like within the crypto space, you know, like bridging like Polkadot, Ethereum, and all these tools that are around Ethereum, how did you just recognize this gap that was sitting between them all. Yeah, well, well, let me. I mean, maybe just for context, I can just. I just want to explain a little bit of what kind of the concept of Moonbeam is. So, uh, you know, Moonbeam is um, uh, planned to be a, a parachain on both Kusama and on Polkadot. That's perhaps something else that we could we could talk about the fact that we're doing on both. But um, you know, the idea is that it's an Ethereum compatible smart contracts parachain, and we're really striving for you know from an initial feature set. We really want to strive for as close to, you know, full Ethereum compatibility, um, uh, you know, as possible. So, you know, the question is why, you know, why that uh, feature set? You know, few reasons. I mean, I think one reason is it kind of back to the original point, it gives us like a very tangible kind of audience and set of users to start engaging with to, you know, that uh, are familiar with, you know, that technology stack or they're using those development tools. Uh, there's existing projects, right, that have existing code bases that um, you know, give us a set of candidates we can go talk to about deploying onto Moonbeam and and giving us feedback. Um, so I think that's definitely is part of the uh, you know, part of the attraction. But I think you know, on the other hand, it's like even if you kind of take this more Polkadot centric approach, I mean, Substrate obviously is you know awesome development framework we're using it ourselves to implement uh, Moonbeam gives lots of choices. But you know, this whole kind of Ethereum dev stack is another set of tools that give another set of choices. So. You know, we feel we can kind of provide uh, another set of choices basically to developers just when, when they're trying to solve their problems. And, you know, there are qu quite a bit of things from that existing, you know, Ethereum 
ecosystem that you know, are potentially useful. I mean, there's whole teams that have you know spent all their time trying to focus on particular like you know problems in UX or in other areas that I think um, you know it's kind of like nice to be able to to leverage those solutions like or make give those options basically. Yeah, so like you implemented the full EVM, but a lot of other projects have done that, and like including on on Parity Substrate, like we have an EVM module. Um, mm -hmm. But can you talk about like why that's not enough on its own? Why like just having the runtime implementation doesn't actually make something compatible with the existing ecosystem? I mean, I'd first make the point that we are, of course, like leveraging Substrate and uh, you know a bunch of the Ethereum compatibility components that are in Substrate, or there is another project called Frontier that's kind of closely related to Substrate. So, I mean, it's definitely, uh, you know, for our project, it's definitely uh, kind of a case of uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. I mean, I think everyone building a parachain is in the sense of Substrate, but I think even, uh, you know, we're kind of doubly so because there is, was, is a bunch of existing Ethereum compatibility functionality, you know, that exists, you know, in and around like the Substrate uh, framework, which we're leveraging. Um, you know, one of them, as you mentioned, is this uh, EVM uh, frame palette uh, that implements, you know, a full, uh, you know, EVM compatible state transition engine. So that's, uh, you know, that's all stuff that that we're kind of leveraging in in um, in Moonbeam. I think what we found is that, and when we started looking at these components, is that there definitely were some missing pieces to make for a, you know, kind of a, a complete solution. Right. Um, one of the critical missing pieces was basically a Web three RPC layer. Um, so, you know, you have the, this EVM implementation, it can help provide, you know, Ethereum compatible state transitions. Uh, but, you know, in order for, you know, let's say an existing front end app, you know, they're all using basically like the Web3, like uh, RPC mechanism, right? If you take an existing Ethereum application and, um, you know, but a substrate node only speaks substrate, right? It has a separate substrate RPC. So th that is definitely like was one missing element that we knew was needed was, you know, the ability to kind of emulator kind of provide this web3 compatible rpc so that existing tools and existing applications could connect to you know substrate based nodes and uh, you know access you know this uh, this evm state transition function so um you know that, that's one so that's one thing we're actually we're just wrapping up a, a grant right now um that we got from uh, web3 foundation to uh, implement this um you know this rpc layer at that that work is actually happening in the frontier project it's actually outside of moonbeam but we're pulling it into moonbeam that's just one example uh, you know, of things. I'd say that, you know, that's on the tech side, but part of our also broader view is that, you know, there's still just a huge lack of just kind of like educational materials. So, you know, a big part of what we're trying to do too is basically create, you know, tutorials, guides, videos, and other other kinds of educational materials um, that above and beyond like the technical implementation uh, and, and feature set, you know, to help, you know, help with adoption, right? To help, help developers understand how to use uh, how to use these components. Yeah, that's super important. And I actually just watched the demo that you did, um, I guess, last week while we're recording this. Who knows how long ago when we release it. But like when you started a substrate node for Moonbeam and then like connected MetaMask to it. And that was like fucking cool, basically. <laughs> um, something we haven't seen before. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it is, I would again say though, it's like it's the power of substrate is definitely like part of the magic uh, here. I mean, and you know, not not to like uh, go down like a path here, but I'd say that I think people don't appreciate like how powerful like a framework like Substrate is to create you know to create an effect like that, right? I mean, it's you know because we've worked with some teams that are building blockchains from scratch, 
And, you know, that's a 20, 30 person engineering effort. Well, I mean, I guess just take parody themselves, right? So like, you know, working for three years, um, you know, with, I don't know how many people, probably 30 engineers, probably over the, you know, on average over the course of that time. I mean, it's just a pretty big effort. And, you know, it's just a dramatic difference when you use a, you know, a framework like, uh, like Substrate to, you know, to kind of implement your project. Yeah. I mean, that's what we're going for. Um, so I think it's getting there. Um, so like when you talk about compatibility, like, Disconnecting to the normal RPC stuff and having the runtime, but we also talk about bridges in Polkadot. And so, could you talk about the difference between Moonbeam and a Polkadot Ethereum bridge? Is like is a bridge like part of Moonbeam, or is it something else entirely? Yeah, um, I would say that you know we want to focus on the smart contract like implementation and kind of the place where developers would develop uh, code. The bridging component does turn out to be critical for you know our use case, and this is feedback we started to get from projects that we're working with. Um, so yeah, let me I'll digress first before kind of directly answering the question. So you know a lot of the projects that, that we approached, you know the, the the dialogue is not, hey, like take your entire thing from Ethereum and move it to Moonbeam and leave Ethereum behind. Uh, that's just not like a practical option for like most projects. I mean, a you know a lot of them are, are DeFi oriented and they have, may have dependencies on other projects within the, you know the Ethereum you know, virtual machine that they're composing with. Um, and just in general, I think for a lot of their use cases, they want to be on Ethereum because that's where there's a lot of liquidity and that's where they can access these other services. So the discussion is less about moving all the way, but more about, you know, how can we kind of extend ourselves or how can we take advantage of Moonbeam? How can we move some of our workloads like to Moonbeam, but like leave our, you know, our footprint on Ethereum? So kind of you end up in this discussion where there's kind of like a hybrid deployment because I mean, they do have some problems, right? So I think that you know, end user gas fees is like a big problem for a lot of projects where, you know, especially even ones that aren't financial oriented when, let's say like a, you know, a game or something and, you know, rolling the dice costs like a dollar plus. Well, that's kind of problematic, right, for some of these use cases. So, you know, what's clear to us is this kind of hybrid deployment is, is kind of going to be one of the key kinds of deployment scenarios to support. And in a hybrid deployment scenario, then the bridge becomes quite important, right? Because like, so then you have kind of your, you know, some footprint or base on a, on a theory mainnet, and then you have some, uh, let's say footprint on, on Moonbeam. You know, how, you know how do you connect the two, right? And um, so that's where the, you know the bridge is definitely an important piece. I think part of our attraction to Polkadot is that is just this this ability for you know different chains to like uh, leverage each other's specialized services. So in the long run, you know we're definitely interested in using you know what would be like a specialized parachain based bridge to Ethereum. I know that there is one that's at least in the beginnings of being under development. So that I mean that's certainly something where I think that that is its own to do build a good like trust minimized bridge is like a you know is like a substantive effort right and so that's our long term thing but you know I think from a practical perspective we are going to need to do something sooner um, so you know we are going to need to do kind of a moonbeam specific point to point bridge back to Ethereum and we are looking at a couple options uh, for that but that'll be something that you know we'll need to do kind of in the short term until this you know parachain based bridge is, is available and you know that also requires then the cross chain integration functionality on the relay chain basically to be able to leverage something like that yeah so. Where does the name Moonbeam come from, actually? Uh, so it's it's from like, a, there's like an old jazz standard, like an old song called Polka Dots and Moonbeams. So I think when we were brainstorming names, like, um, you know, one of the team members like uh, knew the song and played it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think that maybe a lot of people aren't familiar because it's pretty old. It's like from the, you know, the 40s. But, um, you know, I think that, yeah, it seemed to have a nice ring to it, basically. And it kind of connected, you know, like, uh, you know, Polka Dot, like with, uh, with the name of our project. So... Yeah, that's the, the origin of the name. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's July 22nd, so two days after we landed on the moon, at least the, the anniversary of it. 
Um, right. <laughs> so going down like the the path of the bridge and like parachain versus like being on Ethereum. I mean, you talk about like the gas cost and everything on Ethereum. How does a parachain solution compare to like other layer two solutions that would be available just on top of Ethereum? Yeah, I mean, this is something that you know I've been spending some time learning as I've been discussing, you know, talking to these other teams. So, you know, obviously, this this gas problem is kind of connected to just the general Ethereum scalability problem, of which there's many minds at work on finding solutions for that. You know, one thread of execution obviously is ETH2 itself, uh, which is pursuing a sharded model similar to the architecture of, of Polkadot, at least in some sense, uh, homogenous versus heterogeneous, but still a similar kind of parallelization idea. Obviously, a lot of projects can't wait for that. That's led to this emergence of these layer two solutions. There's, um, you know, a whole kind of, I guess, ecosystem of these things now, right? Like, um, you know, there's uh, uh, different roll-up strategies. Um, there's different, like, plasma variants. Uh, so, I mean, I guess my take is this, that, you know, yes, all those solutions, like, you know, in some sense solve, like, the immediate scaling problem. Though, I think if you kind of squint that a little bit, I mean, they all are, at least many of them are, like, um, uh, other chains, right? So like the idea is, you know, you have your assets on the main Ethereum base layer on layer one, and then you move them into this, you know, I don't think that they would use the term sidechain, but you move them into this other space, basically, that is optimized for performance. Now, so it solves kind of the scalability problem. But to me, I think it is a little bit limiting in the sense that, you know, your kind of assets get moved like into this other space, then they're inaccessible from the, the main uh, layer one. It's a different set of APIs and tools a lot of times you're using to kind of create applications that then work with the assets in this kind of separate, you know, cul-de-sac, if you will. And, um, you know, I think that uh, our idea is kind of, you know, we can achieve a lot of the same scalability effects, but through just kind of like a multi-chain approach, right? So, you know, by kind of thinking of your deployment as kind of spanning like multiple chains, you know, then you can, you know, have some of your deployment be on something like Moonbeam where you can get like better scalability. You're still using all the same layer one tools, but then, you know, you're also kind of extending your reach out to like new users and assets into, you know, into Polkadot. So it's kind of like, you know, it's a similar move, but I think there's other benefits, you know, whereas when you move to one of these other scalability solutions, you're kind of like just in this compartment by yourself kind of thing, right? And then, you know, the assets aren't like usable like in any other way. Yeah, so like on Polkadot, what do you view the role of smart contract platforms as being? Because like this is like a very parachain focused. Yeah, no, I, I, well, I think that obviously there is this kind of space in the ecosystem for uh, smart contracts, given the fact that you know smart contract functionality isn't available on the relay chain. Uh, that's intentional, right? Because you want to keep the relay chain lean and kind of push anything complicated to the edges. Uh, is kind of I think the design idea, which definitely makes sense. Um, so, uh, you know, the one question that comes up that, you know, that I, I get sometimes is, well, I mean, substrate itself is kind of, uh, this framework for building decentralized ap applications or app specific blockchains. So like, do you really even need like a smart contract capability if you have substrate? And I mean, at least our take on that is that, uh, there definitely is room for, for, for smart contracts. It's for some use cases, you know, building a full parachain or parathread using substrate is kind of like not the right solution, right? So, I mean, it is, you know, I think it's kind of a thing where it's substrate is extremely powerful, but it also, you know, you do take on responsibility for a lot of things, right? Like, uh, you know, organizing a set of collators that are going to like, you know, support your chain and, you know, uh, you're kind of committing to this, at least as a parachain to like securing a slot, like, and, you know, so there's, there are kind of a number of things that you need to, that you kind of sign up for. Whereas I think for a lot of use cases, you know, outsourcing a lot of those elements to the platform will make sense where, you know, there's just, you know, a, a smart contract back end will kind of like make more sense. So 
you know, I think that's definitely one uh, aspect is that, you know, there's for some set of use cases, a smart contract, um, you know, backend will make sense. And, you know, given this relay chain design, then there, I think there's room for, for smart contract parachains to, uh, to exist. I know there's several projects, um, you know, in the ecosystem that, uh, you know, that are pursuing this idea. And uh, yeah, I think there's just different, you know, obviously there's different choices in how you go about implementing them, right? So I think, you know, several of the other projects are using the, uh, you know, substrate uh, contracts frame palette, right, which gives you ink support, which is, you know, pretty, you know, obviously similar in the sense of smart contracts, but pretty different than, you know, kind of an Ethereum compatible uh, environment. So, you know, again, kind of good to have choice kind of thing. Yeah, and there's been like, I mean, there's like EVM chains, but there's also Wasm chains and other execution environment chains. I mean, how do you see that with just like having so many different compilation targets for smart contracts and where like the EVM fits into that? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, I think for our idea, I mean, there is a little bit of an assumption. I mean, there's an, uh, this multi-chain assumption, but also that, you know, Ethereum is going to continue to exist and going to be something that, you know, people will will want to be kind of uh, deploying across Ethereum and Polkadot for some foreseeable future. So what that means is, I mean, on the one hand, the EVM is obviously this, almost I call it almost industry standard, where there's just lots of tools and other things available for it. So that's, you know, that's obviously part of ideas to support all those. But as, um, you know, Ethereum evolves, you know, we're going to need to evolve like our support too, so that it's not kind of left behind with EVM support as they move on to ETH2 and EWASM and, and so forth. So, you know, we do plan to kind of just maintain compatibility with um, you know, whatever the current implementation technologies are in Ethereum to allow for this just to be relevant, right, to like existing projects that are not deployed on Ethereum. Yeah, and I think like going back to what, what we were talking about with like smart contracts versus building your own chain, you know, building your own chain still requires a lot of capital and like being able to actually get a parachain slot, whereas like smart contracts can let people deploy their own code. So um, like a, a normal parachain, you can't just let anybody deploy code on it that's only really within the smart contracting environment. And so it's like, I see that as fitting in with other blockchains because they might need to use smart contracts for something. No, it's a, it's a good point, right? And I think, um, I mean, I think definitely one angle is that like, you know, in this in, in the spirit of this kind of like specialization and like, um, you know, kind of doing what you're good at. I mean, if, uh, you know, we aim to be good at smart contracts, there could be a, a kind of a use case where, you know, other, someone else outsources their smart contract functionality, you know, kind of functions to, us and you know on the one hand I, I you know I feel like so again like you have like something like the uh, substrate contracts frame palette is something you can just add to your chain and so maybe there's a temptation to do that but I think it's one of those things where you can add the code but you know to to run like a high quality like smart you know to the smart contracts implementation is like not you know it's, it's something that requires like quite a bit of attention and kind of understanding you know a pretty complex uh, set of code so I think that uh, you know a lot of people may opt for this kind of like outsourcing option insofar as that, you know, kind of makes sense. Unless it's like kind of core to your use case where you need to just kind of become like a master of that thing. Yeah, and it also adds like some complexity. I mean, like interacting with a smart contract environment on your own chain with like between the other modules is different than just interacting like between two modules, right? It, the smart contract thing is kind of like a special a special module in some sense. Um, yeah, I, I think it'll be cool when like we see instead of like an external user deploy a smart contract, on a smart contract chain, but like see a parachain deploy a smart contract on some smart contract chain uh, because it wants to host some piece of logic, but doesn't want to express that like in its own chain. 
Yeah. I mean, we're, we're super excited about like the like, cross-chain integration features that are like are forthcoming, like on, you know, on, on Kusama and then, and then Polkadot. So I mean, I'd say, in fact, that's kind of the main motivation that kind of drove us to, you know, Polkadot in the, in the first place is kind of that vision of being able to, you know, have chains that specialize in certain things, but then, you know, remotely access or kind of, uh, you know, outsource kind of functionality uh, that they don't want to focus on to other, you know, other chains. I mean, I think that is a very compelling, you know, kind of vision. So we're, you know, we're super excited about that. I think that, you know, some of the ideas we have on that are that, you know, as those functions come into play, you know, we're quite interested in both implementing them, extending the Ethereum kind of feature set to in include the ability to, you know, leverage those, those features or access those features. But then even if those kind of protocols exist, you know, our take is that there's still going to be a need to even just perform the integration and test it and kind of like vet out like a given integration between two chains. So there'll be value in kind of going through that process for valuable services, so like Oracle services or, you know, other services that exist in Polkadot, but having those as kind of like pre-vetted and kind of available integrations that then developers can consume basically without having to worry about going through those steps themselves. Yeah, I mean, this seems like a good time to talk about Kusama uh, when, when we talk about like testing deployments. Um, so you guys are planning to deploy parachains on both Kusama and Polkadot. Um, and can you talk a little bit about your motivation to do that? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I think that uh, the, the idea of a canary net is basically a great idea. Um, so, I mean, I'll go back to this, you know, coming from this like Web 2 world, I mean, Web 3, that's, I mean, there's a few kind of shocking differences. And I would say this, kind of the way deployments happen is definitely one of them, right? So like web two world, I mean, you know, kind of the best practices, you know, when you hire an intern, like on their first day, you make them push the deployment button to like deploy some new production so that they, you know, get used to that. And you have you know, hundreds of production deployments a day, like when you get to be of reasonable scale. Uh, couldn't be more different in the, in the blockchain space, right? I mean, I think for, you know, uh, I mean, obviously, Polkadot has a lot of features in this area to help make it smoother, but um, you know, I think in the for a lot of chains, like uh, once a year might be like the you know the standard. Um, pretty different, right? And then there's kind of this you know hand wringing kind of you only live once kind of like event that happens like leading up to the deployment, and uh, you know, so I think at least uh, the idea of kind of trying to get back to some more reasonable velocity and like you know while maintaining quality is like a very important thing for us. And, you know, I think we see the use, you know, kind of Kusama and the idea of the canary net as a way to, I mean, not get all the way back to something like that, but at least start getting back into that direction, right? Where you have basically an environment you can deploy into. It has real economic conditions. It serves as like a de-risking mechanism um, so that, you know, when you have code, you know, you deploy it there first, you let it soak there uh, under real conditions, you try to flush out any problems, and then you can kind of promote you know, to the uh, to the mainnet. I mean, and that that coupled with the, you know, on-chain governed like upgrade features, you know, that's, you know, we believe is going to lead to higher velocity and, and and higher quality, right? In our experience, kind of when you can do deployments faster, you get higher quality uh, code as a, as a, as a result. And um, I think that's, you know, that's a pretty key competitive advantage to, you know, substrate-based projects, basically, right? Just this ability to just move, right? I mean, in some, just maintain kind of momentum and kind of like move and respond to, you know, what's happening, Um you know, in my experience, you know, from, you know, especially from the Web2 space, this ability to move is quite important. And you can be a, a smaller, you know, have larger competitors, but if you're able to kind of move faster and respond faster, I mean, you can definitely get, a, you know, a, a big competitive advantage. Yeah, I mean, the, the downside, you know, is, of course, that you kind of duplicate everything, and that includes non-technical things. So, you know, you're going to have like two tokens, and you're going to have... You know, two things. Although, I mean, I would say that given some of the complex mechanics um, that surround 
uh, even kind of launching a, a parachain. So for example, like the crowd, uh, the crowdfunding, like IPO functionality. And you know, there's a lot of functionality where kind of being able to just go through those steps once in advance of kind of the, the mainnet is going to be extremely useful in my, in my, my opinion. Now, I do think there is a downside of complexity where you kind of get this, you know, you not only have to, you have two tokens, you have, um, you know, I'd say that it becomes a little bit like confusing for users potentially, right? Where you have like two networks and you know, so which one is which, and, you know, that can be a little bit of a challenge. But, you know, overall, I mean, I, th I think of it this way, right? Like, you know, a lot of the better quality projects out there, you know, they have this concept of an incentivized test net. And that's a thing that kind of comes into being just before you have a release and then it like goes away. And I think it's a pretty kind of obvious next step to say like, well, why, why is it going away? Let's just like leave, leave it there as a place you can deploy code because we want to be deploying all the time. So like we don't want it to have to go re-spin it up again. Like let's just like, you know, leave it permanently. Yeah, Kusama has been really useful, um, but also, you know, it is the overhead of maintaining and developing two networks. Um, but it, it's... Like it's, it's it's informed so much of Polkadot's design, not just in the runtime, but like the client itself, and like making sure we have good client performance. Uh, so it's kind of funny because when we talk about Kusama, we always talk about like being this experimental, like unaudited test type of thing. Uh, shouldn't say test, but like yeah, canary nets, like chaos. And at this point, like it's been upgraded so many times that the code in Kusama has actually been heavily audited, and it's actually quite stable, like almost. It's almost the same code as as in Polkadot now, um, which actually gives it like this ability to be Kusama, but for parachains, right? So like a parachain can come to Kusama yeah. and use Kusama like as it's Kusama before going to Polkadot. Um, but it's actually very similar to to Polkadot at least now, and I, I think we'll see the runtimes diverge a little bit. And uh, I, I, I mean, we I want them see to this... be like more uh, cutting edge. Yeah, I, I kind of see it as like you know, it's like I run like you know, Ubuntu on my like computer, right? There's like the LTS release and then there's like the the mainline release. And there's like some set of people that just gravitate when they look, they're like, oh, well, what's the most recent LTS release? And I'm going to use that. That's me. But, uh, you know, I think for a lot of people, they go to like, you know, whatever the latest like numbered like releases. So, and I feel like, you know, Canonical is probably using that strategy in a similar fashion, right? They're like de-risking, you know, kind of really, they're putting slightly more, you know, uh, experimental code like on, on the uh, latest releases. And then they're like moving, you know, moving back to the more conservative you know, set of code like on the on the LTS releases. Yeah. So like looking towards like the broader ecosystem, I mean we have like Ethereum, Kusama, Polkadot. How do you see all these different networks actually working together? I think this is this is a little bit of the trick. And you know, as with many things, it's like the change is like less I mean, there is some technology pieces, but the change is more, I think, in people's minds than <laughs> in changing people's minds than like in like the, it being a technical problem. Yeah, I mean, there's obviously kind of, um, you know, you're always going to get a little bit is like this, like a tribalism, like at play, like in this space, which is also another, you know, somewhat unusual thing, you know, kind of coming in from the Web2 space that you that you notice. I mean, my hope is that, you know, that we're drawn to the interoperability idea, because, you know, I think with interoperability between these chains in place, you know, then it just opens choices for developers to kind of it, it, on the one hand, specialization, but also as a developer, I can choose then to take advantage of the best that like any given chain has to offer, right? And I think, I mean, that's kind of the, the what we would like to see is for people to stop thinking of like, well, I'm deployed to Ethereum or I'm a de deployed to Polkadot or I'm deployed to a substrate sovereign chain. It's more of a, you know, this kind of idea of like, where are you deployed? I mean, think about it, right? In the in the regular Web2 space, you know, the applications get deployed across like Amazon, maybe there's an, some local data center, maybe there's Azure, there's or there's different specialized components you're integrating with. And the, the applications kind of spread, right? You kind of use the services that you need basically to achieve the effect you want. 
And that's kind of, I think, what we would expect to, to, to happen, right? That's what makes sense because you can, you know, as the developer, you just want to basically be able to assemble the services that you need and kind of where they're located, like is, I mean, is, is something to think about, but it's not like the primary driver of like, you know, what, you know, what's motivating you. Yeah, I mean, we see that even in like the validator setups of proof of stake networks where, I mean, like literally like in one script that's like spins up AWS and Google Cloud and, you know, all these, and Azure, all these different platforms, all these different regions to perform validation for these networks. So it does seem like a, a reasonable abstraction that like when it comes to the application, you could deploy it on multiple infrastructure, just like the infrastructure is deployed on multiple infrastructure. Yeah, no, that's right. I think some key enabling technologies that probably don't exist yet is like, you know, one would be something like Docker or some kind of way to basically take a workload and kind of abstract it so it could be deployed in different places. So, I mean, that's something I would expect to have. I mean, I think the EVM actually is kind of like that now because it's like, but it's not obviously not designed to be that, but I think that's maybe as close as you get right now. Um, you know, I expect to see some further kind of development of that. And then, of course, there's you know, whatever like the analog of something like Terraform would be, right? Or some somewhere where you could maybe even automate, you know, some of this this movement. I mean, this is pretty futuristic we're talking about now, but I think, you know, that that I mean, this kind of goes back to that that kind of concept of specialization where that substrate enables, which is that I think, you know, there's different kinds of services that, you know, if you kind of optimize the underlying implementation for them, that's gonna like make the mess more efficient, right? So if it's long-term storage or if it's compute or if it's you know whatever it is. Um, and then being able to assemble those services, um, I think that's kind of a path that makes sense to follow. That is kind of um, you know analogous, maybe to what uh, what I've seen in the Web two space. Yeah. So to start like wrapping up, have you seen anybody like building applications on Moonbeam so far? Yeah. So I mean, I think uh, right now we kind of achieved like our first kind of major milestone, which is just to you know release this Ethereum compatibility, which I was demonstrating. Uh, I think it was actually just uh, yeah earlier this week. Um, that you had seen. So that's um, three weeks ago or so that we achieved that milestone. We're now kind of in discussions with, you know, a number of uh, projects, you know, uh, particularly some Ethereum, you know, based projects to uh, start to, you know, test it and try it. I mean, we're still a bit early in those discussions. I don't know that I can name like many of those projects right now, but I think that's where I'm spending a lot of my personal time is basically in this kind of engagement with projects and, um, and, uh, you know, kind of just getting our message out there, right? Because we're, you know, still a relatively small, you know, project in the big scheme of things and, you know, aren't on people's radar, like, you know, yet. Yeah, I mean, kind of going back to the beginning, like understanding your users and what kind of features you need. No, that's right. That's right. We're getting, I mean, we're already getting valuable, you know, so even like on this hybrid deployment, I'll give you one example, right? I mean, there's different ways you can do it. I mean, do you have like an application that connects simultaneously to like, you know, Ethereum and Moonbeam? Um, or do you have it where the user interface elements are like, you know, just on Moonbeam, but there's like a backend connect connection back to Ethereum. There's different kind of patterns and there's some practical things we've, we've uncovered where, you know, for example, MetaMask um, doesn't like having like, you know, two Web3 providers simultaneously instantiated to two different chains. So then the, that kind of influences how, you know, some constraints on how you can do things. So, you know, we're, we're kind of in this learning mode right now where we're learning quite a bit about what these hybrid deployments are going to look like. That's really interesting. Like, I'm, ex- I'm excited to see... Um, how that develops, and hopefully we see you on Kusama pretty soon. Like, how is your prep going for launching your mainnet? Or, well, I guess you don't have one mainnet. You have uh, Kusama. Yeah, our Kusama net is going to be is the first goal. So, I mean, really, we're, our our goal is to launch that like by the end of the year. Um, we do have, you know, you know, some some substantive work between now and then to accomplish. Um, you know, the main thing we're doing now is we are working on a kind of parachain based test net. Um, you know, I think most projects have kind of opted for the substrate standalone like testnet. 
in our take is that parachain kind of functionality and, and Cumulus is like, is, you know, there's a lot of activity happening on it now and it's close enough where, you know, since that's our ultimate like deployment, you know, kind of how we're deploying our chains, we'd rather just go straight for that on our test net. So we're working on that now. We've made progress. We expect to have that this quarter. And then, um, and then we kind of march onwards towards, uh, you know, our, our Kusama net as, uh, as kind of the goal by the end of the year. Yeah, I hope we see that by the end of the year. Wrap it up there. Where can people follow Moonbeam? Uh, yeah, so um, I'd say on the web, uh, we're moonbeam.network. Uh, that's a great place to start. There's a, you know, a doc site that, uh, you know, I've mentioned that uh, is linked off of, off of there that has, you know, a bunch of uh, videos and other tutorials uh, on it if you're interested in kind of learning more about Moonbeam and kind of engaging with uh, the Ethereum compatibility uh, features in particular. Uh, yeah, I think that that's probably the best place, you know, to kind of to kind of go to find us. I mean, we're active on, you know, we have a riot room as well for any, um, you know, any developers that you know are, are looking for support, you know, as they're kind of uh, looking at the network. We're you know, more than happy to to support folks. Yeah, or maybe Element by the time this comes uh, out. Sorry, Element. Excuse me. Yes, Element. <laughs> yeah. That's already happened, I guess. Um, yeah, and I can. Uh, I read some of your docs, and I will say it's like very well written. And um, anybody who works with me knows that I'm a huge stickler, so. Um, yeah, I think they're really good. Appreciate that. Cool. We'll wrap it up there. Thanks for coming on, Derek. All right. Well, thanks so much, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at Relay Chain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. 